For the rest of us, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, finishing up the first main section of the book. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, or if we were on the other side of the pond, 1 Corinthians. Sounds so much better, but awkward. Be in chapter 4, looking at verses 6 through the end of the chapter. Who would you like to least be stuck to in a party? Wouldn't it be that guy that talks about himself all night long, that Mr. Big Head? You hear all about his job and how they don't deserve him and how he should be running that company instead of his moron boss. He'll regale you with brags about his fast new car or his new boat and why he thinks it's the best and you need to come out to the lake sometime. He is the world's greatest living expert in himself. And he'll tell you all about it. But what if the puffed up person was your teenage son or daughter? And what if you were their wealthy dad? Everything they own, everything they possess, everything they have, they have because you gave it to them, and you gave it to them because you love them. But you overhear them criticizing you to their friends. Oh, man, my dad is so lame. He didn't get it at all. What a loser. Not only that, they brag to their friends about their stuff, and they put others down for not wearing what they wear or driving what they drive as if they're the ones who paid for it. Your heart breaks hearing it. Not most of all because they slandered you, but because you know that that attitude is not only going to hurt lots of other people, but it's going to hurt them in the long run. How would you help your son or daughter? How would, how would you help Mr. or Mrs. Bighead? This is the predicament that the Apostle Paul finds himself in. The church in Corinth is full of big-headed, judgy Christians. He was a spiritual father to them, and they slandered him. They had become puffed up as if every good thing in their life wasn't ultimately a gift from God. And so he says in our passage, I write these things to admonish you as my beloved children. What will he say? How will he help them? What words might he offer for correction for comfort, or even for warning. With that, I invite you to stand with me now for the public reading of God's Word. And let's consider the things that Paul, the father, wrote to his beloved, big-headed children. Verse 6. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. 
For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you didn't receive? If then you received it, well, then why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Well, already you have all that you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. Oh, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I thank that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, oh, but you're strong. We're held in power, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst and we're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. And when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. And I'll write these things to make you feel ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved, and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere, in every church. And yet some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. If we were to summarize the big idea of our passage in one sentence, it might be something like this. You can find it on the back of your bulletin. Since everything that we have comes from the Lord, He is our only boast. Since everything that we have comes from the Lord, He is our only boast. We're going to see this theme teased out in at least three sections, three movements through our passage. We're going to see a first thing in verses 6 to 7, that is a gifting principle to learn. A gifting principle to learn. We're going to see secondly in verse 8, a timing problem to avoid. A timing problem to avoid. And then we're going to see finally in verses 9 through 21, a fatherly pattern to follow. We're going to see a fatherly pattern to follow. We're going to see a principle, a problem, and a pattern over the course of these 15 or so verses. Let's begin with that first point, a gifting principle to learn. There in verse 6, Paul warns them, do not go beyond what is written. What is he talking about? What was written? Well, in the first four chapters, we've seen it time and again. Chapter 1, verse 9, it is written. And then he quotes the Old Testament, that God is going to destroy those who boast in human wisdom. Chapter 1, verse 31, it is written. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 9, it is written. 
He's saying nobody can boast about knowing the wisdom of God. It's a gift of God to us by His Spirit. Chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, For it is written, human wisdom is futile. Therefore, verse 21, here's the application, so don't boast in men. Are you picking up on a theme? Paul is saying in verse 6, I'm applying God's word to you in these ways so that you don't become big-headed Christians who play favorites in the church. I'm cobbling together all these Old Testament references so that you would be the kind of Christians who don't boast in the world or boast in men, but that you would be the kind of Christians that boast in the Lord. Because, verse 7, spiritually speaking, is there really any difference between you after all? This is really the theme of the first four chapters. It's bigger than the contrast that we've observed between wise and foolish. It's, it's bigger even issue, than the issues of splits and divisions. The categories really in the first four chapters, which is all one big section, the big categories are about gift and receipt. Everything is about gift and receipt. Look back at chapter 1. Verses 4 and 5, I give thanks to my God, Paul writes, always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge. Verse 7, so that you're not lacking in any gift. They had been given everything and they received it all, not as a, as a reward for their own doing, but as a gift. It was a it was an act of grace from God. Look back at verse 7, though, chapter 4. Paul's saying, since you've received everything then as a gift from God, then all of you are the same. There's no difference then between rest of you, which means that there's really no room for big-headed boasting in the church. Because if everything was ultimately given to you, then your only boast is in the one who gave it to you. And you have no other boast. Now, here's the truth of the matter. If you and I worshipped a smaller God, well, then it would be okay to boast. God would then be to us little more than a divine venture capitalist. He gives us a little bit of spiritual startup capital that we need to get going. We invest it, we earn our way, and then we pay back God with interest. Aren't we good Christians? Isn't God so much better off because of Christians like us? If only he received the same return on investment from, from other, maybe less faithful Christians as he does from us, faithful Christians like us. If only other churches were as profitable for God as our church is. Verse 7 reminds us that that's not how things work in God's kingdom. If everything comes from God and God gives us everything that we have, then you and I have no room then to be big-headed Christians without belittling God as a result. Big-headed Christians belittle God. Now, this is certainly true of our salvation. I don't think there's anybody in here that would deny that. But you realize this is also true about everything that you have materially. Our God is the Father of lights from whom every good and perfect gift comes. There is nothing that you have from your brain to your body to your talents and your gifts and all of your natural abilities that God, who is the fountain of all things, has given to you as an act of His great grace. 
His sustaining and common grace. Everything has been given. And so who then are we, if we know that, to boast in anything? And so Paul lays down a principle here in the first handful of verses, in verses 6 to 7. He gives us a gifting principle to learn. And so we need to keep that in mind as we go through the rest of the passage. But then in verse 8, he's going to identify a timing problem to avoid. A timing problem to avoid. I want you to compare verse 8 with verses 1, or chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 again. Let me read it. Although you already have all you want, and already you have become rich, without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign, that we might share the rule with you. If you just glance back at chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, which I already read, here's the question. Are the Corinthians, in making claims about themselves in these ways, telling the truth? They're saying, look at how full we are. Look at how rich and royal we are. Is that what they're really like? Or are they being proud and boastful? Our first clue in verse 8 is in the phrase, without us. Do you see it there? You might underline it or circle it. They think that they're kings in a way that Paul and Apollos and other Christians are not. Look how gifted we are. That theme is going to come out later in the book. And indeed, Paul's going to say, you are gifted. You've been gifted in every way, enriched in every way. You're not lacking in any gift. That's what you just saw. But here's the rub. Big-headed Christians can only look down on other Christians if they forget where those gifts came from and what those gifts are ultimately for. Big-headed Christians can only look down on other Christians if they forget where those gifts come from. Well, there's a second clue in verse 8, and it's really a far more serious one, I think, and it's implied in that word, already. Another word to underline or circle, perhaps. We're already full. We have everything we need. We're already rich. Their boasts, now I want you to take note of this, their boasts don't ultimately have a theology problem. Their boasts have a timing problem. They have been enriched. But how they understand their relationship to their enriching in Christ, that's the problem. That they become so big-headed about their own spiritual greatness that they were claiming all of God's future promises for themselves now. As if, chapter 15, the resurrection had already happened. Look at how full and rich and royal we are. Beloved, this has always been a temptation for Christians, hasn't it? God, for instance, promises that there's going to be no more sickness in the new creation. But we start claiming that all of our illnesses must be healed now, already. Or God says, one day in the new creation, we will know him fully. But there may be certain mystical Christians that will claim that they already know him and already see him fully. Whether it be through visions or dreams or perhaps extra revelation. I realize that some of you grew up in certain kinds of charismatic backgrounds that have made certain kinds of boasts. Listen, God loves you. He wants you to be full and rich and royal. And God has promised that. But not yet. They get the promise right, but they get the timing wrong. 
And if anyone's ever promised you that you can take hold of these promises today, if you just attend some special meeting or a revival or a camp or pray this kind of prayer, then they're taking God's name in vain to promise you things that God has not promised in the present. And is that much different than what we see these Corinthians doing? They knew about God's promises to make us finally and fully rich and royal in Christ in the new creation that we will indeed reign with him. But they started to claim those future promises for themselves now as if the resurrection had already occurred. And that's an error that Paul is going to take head on in chapter 15. It's going to be the conclusion to this masterful and pastoral letter. But I want you to notice how Paul undermines these already assumptions. There in verse 11, he says, at the present hour. And again in verse 13, if you glance down at that, we have become and are still. Paul says, no, no, this is what the Christian life is like. This is what it will always be until Jesus comes back. That's why he's going to say later on in verse 16, therefore, I want you to imitate me. I wonder if Covenant Baptist Church has a timing problem. How can we know if we've passed the already test? I don't think any of you believe that the resurrection has already happened. At least, I don't think so. Not like our Corinthian friends here. Nor am I aware of anybody naming and claiming God's future promises for us now that we'd be fully healthy and wealthy today. But I wonder, might there be a temptation for some of us to become big-headed in our theology? I don't mean to be, I don't mean being certain of our doctrine. That's a good thing. Paul says time and again in his letters, I am certain of certain things. So I'm not talking about doctrinal certainty, but, but are we doctrinaire in our spirit toward others? Are we ever tempted to get puffed up against other true Christians and other true churches because maybe they're not as Calvinistic as we are or as Reformed as we are or as Nine Marks or 689 or whatever as we are? Look at how full and royal and rich we are in our theology. Beloved, if we ever assume that we have mastered the perfect theology, then I want to suggest that we are no better than the Corinthians. We may not realize that we're doing it, we're essentially applying God's future promises of knowing him fully to ourselves now. Consider Paul's words later on. He writes this in chapter 13 of the same letter. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, speaking of Christ, the partial will pass away. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Notice that Paul's not advocating for a kind of doctrinal agnosticism. He's not saying, hey, it's not like we can really be certain about anything anyway, so each to his own. No, God has spoken to us in his word. He's spoken to us by his son in these last days. And with help from the Holy Spirit, as we saw in chapter 2, we can know God truly. We also know from what we've studied in the previous chapters that this knowledge, well, it's ultimately a gift from God. 
So who are we to be puffed up against others in our knowledge? No, quite the opposite. Our theology should humble us. And if it doesn't, then it may be that we're wrong or our theology is wrong. But if we're humble like Paul, then I need you to hear this. We will never confuse knowing God truly with knowing God fully in this life. We will never confuse knowing God truly with knowing God fully in this life. We'll never presume that our present knowledge is the same as what our future knowledge will be. As if we already know that. And we really don't have anything else to learn from other Christians. Only big-headed Christians do that. Look at that Christian or that church over there. They're not as full or rich or as royal in their theology as we are. We don't need them. They don't have anything to teach us. Beloved, we are spiritual beggars in this life. We had nothing. God has now in Christ given us something, and he has promised us everything. But the only time you and I will be able to say that we are finally full and rich and royal according to God's promises is the day that Jesus comes back, raises us from the dead, brings us to himself, makes all things new, and lets us reign with him in his new creation. Oh, we look forward to that day. But in that day, listen to me, in that day, I will not be a king without you. And you aren't going to be a king without me. And we are not going to be kings without the churches down the road or the other Christians that perhaps we've disagreed with along the way. We are all going to be kings together with Christ, co-heirs. And so here's the question. Here's how you know if you pass the already test. Does that disappoint you? Does it disappoint you that there will be no social superiors in heaven? Does it disappoint you that nobody will be more knowledgeable, will have their theology more right, will have any grounds for any puffing up in that day, if it disappoints you that you and I will be kings together and that our church will be kings with the churches down the road together, such that there, no one will see anything different in us than you and I have a problem. Now listen, the Lord may make some of you leaders in this life and he may make others of you wealthy in this life and he may make others of you even more influential in an earthly sense than others of you and that's okay. Praise God for that. All of those things, your body, your brains, your talents, everything that he's given you, those are God's gift to you for our sake, for our good, not for your good, and for his glory. But you need to remember that those things, no matter how gifted you are, or rich you are, or talented you are, or influential you are, every single one of those things is temporary. All these kinds of earthly burdens that you bear will one day be laid down for good. Your riches, your distinguishing talents will all be laid down at the foot of Christ. And if you're disappointed that there's coming a day that you won't be richer or smarter or more influential or more doctrinally sound than anyone else, then friend, your big-headed pride has got you in a spiritual danger zone. 
And Paul's reply to their boasting and to ours can be found in verses 9 and following. And it's especially helpful to you. And so here we see, beginning in verse 9, all the way through the end of the chapter, our final point, a fatherly pattern to imitate. We saw there in verse 8 that Paul recounted how the Corinthians consider their own circumstances. They, they claim to be full and rich and royal in the present day. And so he puts a pin to their puffed up balloon heads by describing his own circumstances. Verses 9 through 13 are carefully structured. We see a summary in verse 9 that he says, We are like men sentenced to death. And then we see another one in verse 13. We are the scum of the world. And then in between these two, we're going to see a number of carefully constructed points. There in verse 10, we're going to see three contrasts. You say you're wise, but we are fools. You say you're strong, but, but we're weak. You're held in honor but we are held in disrepute. Did you know that the Holy Spirit inspires sarcasm? Paul is laying it on thick. And you should be able to read it in the words that he's laying down. But notice also in verses 11 and 12, he lays out six realities of his own life and ministry. What is it like to be an apostle of Jesus? He says, well, you say in verse 8, we have all that we want. But Paul says here, we hunger and thirst. You say we are rich and we are royal. But notice what Paul says here. He says, we are poorly dressed and we are buffeted and we are homeless and we are laboring. Our life is a life of humiliation for Christ's sake. But even so, even in the face of all of these things, second half of verse 12 and verse 13, he says, we still give three strange responses. Strange responses to the world, that is, not... Not strange responses to those who have received the grace of God in Christ. He says, but when we're reviled, we bless. And when we're persecuted, we endure. And when we're slandered, we entreat. Can you imagine the shock when this was read for the first time to this church? You got to remember that there was a group that thought Paul was the best. And then there was another group that thought Apollos was the best. And then there was a maybe somewhat smaller group that thought Peter was the best. And I bet the Paul group is feeling pretty good about themselves on the day that Paul's letter arrived. Paul's going to settle this once and for all. And so all you suckers that think that Apollos is so great, well, you just wait. You wait till good old Paul puts y'all on blast. We're just going to sit back and enjoy it. And then the letter's open and it gets read aloud. And Paul begins to say things like, I'm foolish. I'm weak. I'm disreputable, I'm hungry, and I'm homeless. How do you think the pro-Paul group felt in that moment? Oh, no, 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 Paul, don't say that. If we're going to contextualize the gospel in Corinth, Corinth, we need to be impressive. My rich friends are never going to take you seriously with talk like that. You're going to turn away my philosophy neighbor philosopher neighbor. But Paul says, no, 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 no. 
I was called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's how he began the entire letter. And I am, he says here in verse 13, I am the scum of the world. I am the refuse of all things. Quite literally, I am the stuff that you scrape off your shoe when you come home from the dog park. And my way of life, he says in verse 16, he says, that's the pattern that I want you to imitate. Because in the end, all I'm doing is imitating Jesus. Friend, if you're here today and you're visiting, perhaps investigating Christian things, then I hope that you'll pay especially close attention now. In fact, if you don't have a Bible of your own, you might take one of the black Bibles that you see under the seats in front of you. Take it home with you. And I would encourage you to take an hour or so and consider Jesus by reading through the Gospel of John. And at the end of John's gospel, here's what you're going to find in Jesus. You're going to find a man who, like Paul in verse 9, was sentenced to death. And then like Paul, everyone thought he was foolish and weak and disreputable. And you're not going to hear him ever say, man, I am full. But you're going to hear him, you're definitely going to hear him say on the cross, I am thirsty. Only to have his clothes taken off of him as the one who has no home in which to lay his head. Most remarkably, when he was reviled by others, he blesses them. And when he was persecuted by others, he endured it for the prize that was set before him. Here is Jesus, God's eternal son on earth. And, and what you're going to see is that even though he was treated like the scum of the world... And he was treated like the refuse of all things. And what's even more remarkable is he went through all that humiliation willingly so that he might be a savior to all who believe in him. Friend, consider, as the Apostle Paul put it, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. Not rich in money, not even rich in friends perhaps, but rich from having your sins forgiven. Rich in the righteousness of Christ imputed to you. Rich in eternal life in him. But to those of us who have already been brought to trust in Christ, Paul says in verse 16, be imitators of me. And that call is no less than a call to imitate Christ. It's to make his attitude our attitude. That was the point that he's trying to make to these whom he considers his own spiritual children. And the Corinthians already knew that. But you remember they had a timing problem. They thought about that being a Christian today was about being like Jesus is right now. About being risen and ruling and glorified and powerful. They were applying future promises to themselves in the present. And so here Paul uses his own life as an example to follow. He says, Christians now, quote, to the present hour, and beloved, even to our own day and to the end of the age, are to walk, as it were, with Christ to the cross. And I hope that you're able to see the parallels then between the description that the Apostle Paul gives to his own life and that of our Lord Jesus Christ's humiliation. And in verse 14, like a good father, Paul notes 
I don't mean to say any of this to make you feel ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. He's saying, I'm not shaming you for being rich Christians. I'm not shaming you for being influential Christians. Those are God's gift to be received with thankfulness and be used for his glory and the good of the church. But if any of you value your wealth or your status or your intellectual reputation in a way that puffs you up against other Christians, as if you didn't receive everything that you have from God in the first place, he says, well then, my child, be warned. Stop right there. And follow my example instead. My example is not one of exaltation. My example is one of humiliation. And that's the example that we find in Christ. He says that your attitude, your self-exalting, puffed-up, big-headedness, looks so much unlike Jesus. Our life now looks like taking up a cross and following him to the end of the age. And our life at the end of the age when he comes back looks like being glorified with him to rule and to reign in a new creation forever. And we can't get those confused. The minute that we begin to bring in too much future into the present and apply it practically in our own lives now and begin boasting, as we see the Corinthians do, we're in big, big trouble. Well, Paul... And our handful of verses to conclude the chapter. You know that this is a serious issue. Their souls are at stake because he's going to give them a pastoral threat. His first response in verses 9 through 16 is, imitate me. But his second response, as you scan through verses 17 to 21, is a fatherly threat. Paul thinks the problem in Corinth is so serious that he threatens them about it. He says, don't make me come over there. That's what fathers say, isn't it? Don't make me come down there. And I can't think of any other place in the New Testament where Paul threatens a church like this. If you think of one, you can come up to me afterwards and tell me, but I can't think of one. I couldn't find one. This seems to be the only place, and it just gives a testimony of how severe things were. He says in verse 17, I'm going to send my number one troubleshooter, and his arrival is going to be your last chance. When you see Timothy, know that I'm coming shortly after. And then in verses 18 to 20, we see that apparently some have been calling his bluff, whatever. Paul's never coming, but Paul will come to them soon. And he will judge for himself whether these puffed up Christians are in keeping with the gospel or if they're all words and no power. You see that there in verse 20. And so then he says in verse 21, my children, you choose what sort of father I will be when I come. Do you want me to be a loving father reconciled to his humble children? Or do you want me to come as a disciplining father who has to teach you a lesson so that you learn never to make the same disastrous mistake again? Do you want me to come in love and gentleness and kindness and joy? Or do you want me to bring pain with my visit? If you want to know what kind of visit they chose, you can on your own time read 2 Corinthians 2. It'll say exactly what kind of visit Paul ended up making. And it was a painful one. They didn't heed his warning. 
For our sakes, though, I don't think that the threat that Paul makes here is to all Christians generally. I don't think it's to us specifically. He's addressing unique situations in this particular church, perhaps and even arguably some of the messiest that he faced. When we get to chapter 5, we're going to see and be astonished with Paul that this was a church that not only tolerated sexual immorality, but outright incest. Not only that, some of the church members are going out to visit prostitutes. And they're tolerating all of this, and they still thought they were the best church in Greece. And so when we get to those chapters, you and I are probably going to rightly think, that's crazy. And we may find it difficult at times to see our own church reflected in chapters 5 and 6. At least I hope so, by God's grace. But to the extent that we take on our own culture the things that our culture values, the things that we feel that we need to add to the gospel in order to be impressive for the gospel's sake, in these ways, we should consider ourselves really carefully in light of chapters 1 through 4. Paul here is astonished. He is scandalized that Christians who have received so much from God in Christ could be so big-headed and divisive. Or he's just totally scandalized by the notion that they think that power and wealth and status pairs well with following Jesus when he's already told them to consider their own calling. Not many of you are like that. Beloved, listen to me. I love our church. I would not willingly choose to pastor any other church in the whole world. And honestly, I will not retire if we have dueling accordions. But if I'm honest, I'm just as tempted as some of you may be to get big-headed too. This week I found it quite difficult based on reflecting on chapters 1 through 4 to consider whether Paul would visit our church with a gentle spirit or with a rod. If the Apostle Paul were to hop into a time machine and, and come and visit us today perhaps, how would he come to us? What kind of fatherly spirit would he come to us in? What might he see in me? What might he see in us? Things that we don't see. Those things that are hard for us to see because it's so hard to get outside of ourselves and downwind of ourselves. Beloved, we need to pray that God uses the truths of these chapters by the power of his Holy Spirit to help us see ourselves more clearly that we would not be big-headed Christians. These might be godly conversations to have in your one another groups or at guys' night when you get together. It's to come back to 1 Corinthians 1 through 4 and just say, hey, do we see ourselves anywhere in here and how does the gospel call us out of it and back to Christ? And as you do, well then, beloved, I would call you to remember verse 14. That God, at the end, doesn't intend to shame any of us, but he intends to admonish us as his children. Because if you think about it, the real joy of the Christian life, and really much of life, generally speaking, is in receiving gifts. Receiving gifts say something of our worth to the one who's giving them. And Jesus thinks that we're worth something. 
Not because many of us were wise or powerful, not because any of us have any high status in society, not because we're impressive by the world's standards, but because his father chose us to be saints together in him. Set apart for his glory, along with every other true Christian and every other true church. And so after four chapters, it should be clear then that you and I, though we may be in a worldly sense different in many ways, we are not ultimately in Christ any different. For who sees any difference in us? And so, beloved, make no mistake about it. We are special. You are special in Christ. And I don't mean that in kind of like a modern Saturday morning, like pump you up the more you know, you know, infomercial, but you are special in Christ. But you're not special because you're rich. You're special because you've been enriched in every way in him. You're not special because you're powerful in the world, but you're special because according to verse 19, you are part of God's powerful kingdom. So the question becomes, how could gifts like this produce anything but humility and thanksgiving and joy in us. All things are ours in Christ. Would you pray with me then? And let's ask God to do it in us.